Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. Today we're discussing four more unsolved missing person cases. Let's get into it. Number one, James McLaughlin. February 27, 1998 was a cold winter day in Elyra, Ohio, a Cleveland suburb near Lake Erie, surrounded by parks and forest reserves. It was on this day that 57-year-old James McLaughlin disappeared from his Elyria home and has never been seen or heard from again. While there are few details available to the public on this case, it seems clear that James did not simply walk out of his home one day to run away or make a new life for himself elsewhere. James was not well at the time of his disappearance. He was under doctor's care for a condition that has been kept private, either due to the wishes of the police or James's family. Some speculate that he may have had cancer, but it has not been confirmed. We do know that whatever was wrong required regular prescription medication, yet he left his medication at home. James also could not have simply driven away to start a new life because he was not able to drive at the time of his disappearance and depended on rides from others as a means of transportation. His checkbook was left behind as well, but it's unclear if he had a wallet with him or when he disappeared if his bank account had any activity when missing. This information too is being held by police. In an almost 25-year-old cold case, we can't help but wonder why so much information about this disappearance is being held back by the police. If James is alive today, he'd be 82 years old. James hoped that someone out there may remember seeing James or may have information that will eventually lead to answers for his family. Number 2. Amanda K. Jones Amanda K. Jones was just weeks away from giving birth when she disappeared in 2005. At 26 years old, she was already the mother of a young daughter and living in Hillsborough, Missouri. At eight and a half months pregnant, she was seemingly making one final attempt to convince the baby's father to be a part of his son's life. The father, Brian Westfall, was the last known person to have seen Amanda alive. Brian and Amanda met at her company's Christmas party on December 2004. Amanda was recently divorced with a four-year-old daughter from a previous marriage. According to Amanda, she and Brian went home together after the party, but the relationship ended there. Then in February, Amanda discovered that she was pregnant. According to the family, Amanda had met with Brian to tell him that she was pregnant and asked if he wanted to be a part of the baby's life. He said that he did not want to be involved with the baby and offered to pay for an abortion. Amanda wanted to have the baby and did not consider this an option. Amanda arranged to meet Brian again in August, just weeks before she was due to give birth. It is not known what conversation or interaction took place between them that day because she was not seen or heard from since. 
Amanda's car was found parked outside the Hillsboro Civic Center, where she had met with Brian previously. A set of sonogram photos were found inside the car. Brian Westfall has not spoken to the police or media since 2005 and denied that Amanda's child was his. Though Westfall has been the prime suspect for many years, there's never been enough evidence to charge him. Then, in December 2021, just as police were apparently coming closer to charging Westfall, he suddenly died of a stroke in his home. The FBI had recently put up electronic billboards about Amanda Jones' case, offering up to a $20,000 reward. Jones was eight and a half months pregnant when she disappeared. She left behind a daughter who was four years old at the time, now 20. Brian Westfall was the father of Jones's unborn child, and he'd met with Jones right before she disappeared. It was a meeting to discuss the baby. This afternoon, Jones' family issued a statement saying, The sudden death of Brian Westfall has shocked all of us beyond belief. We as a family feel cheated that Brian has died before we could find our daughter Amanda and unborn grandson Hayden. Jones' family went on to express condolences to Brian Westfall's parents, saying the Westfall family can lay their child to rest in a sacred place. Quote, we still have not had that opportunity. Amanda's family continue to hope and search for answers. There is still a $100,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest or the discovery of Amanda's remains. Number 3. George Norman Hayes In 2019, the Toronto Cold Case Unit began dusting off unsolved cold cases from the 70s and 80s, re-examining them and putting out appeals to the public for more information. Among the strangest and perhaps most frustrating of these cases is the disappearance of George Norman Hayes. In November 1978, George Norman Hayes was 22 years old when he left his parents' home for a doctor's appointment and was never seen or heard from again. He never arrived at his doctor's appointment, and he was reported missing by his parents the next day. The case had set cold for decades. No one knew what happened to the young man. When the case was reopened in 2019, it was discovered that there were likely answers available to detectives at the time of George's disappearance. Reports of a man's body that was found later in March of 1979, just a few months after George's disappearance in Lake Ontario, near the mouth of the Oswego River. According to the records, this John Doe had a tattoo of a devil holding a pitchfork with Mandarin written underneath it. Hay's sister, Dolores, knew that the tattoo belonged to her brother. The mystery might have easily ended there, allowing George's family to formally identify him and properly put him to rest. Hay's body may have also provided clues as to whether his death was an accident or suicide or may have involved foul play. And while it seemed as though the Toronto police were helpful and invested in the case, the body was technically found on the American side of Lake Ontario. Bizarrely, New York authorities seemed baffled as to where the body ended up, suggesting that it may have been buried in an unmarked grave in a nearby cemetery. They also no longer had the photos that had supposedly been taken of George's telltale tattoo, claiming they had been lost in a recent flooding. To this day, it is unclear how this John Doe had been missed when Toronto detectives were looking for George. It seems like the bureaucratic red tape was the only thing in between solving George's cold case. However, if it wasn't George's body, it still was someone, and it's heartbreaking that there could be two families 
who may never have the answers because of carelessness when handling a deceased victim. New York law enforcement has no idea where the John Doe was ultimately buried. George's parents have passed now, but his siblings and other family members continue to search for answers. They've been fighting back and forth with Toronto law enforcement and their American counterparts to locate and determine if this John Doe is George. Anyone with any additional information on the case is being encouraged to contact the Toronto police. Number 4. Dorothy Arnold For our last case, we have the oldest unsolved missing persons case on the Charlie Project. The Charlie Project is one of the largest public cold case websites that catalogs unsolved and missing person cases. It was founded in 2001 by the Doe Network founder, Jennifer Mara. It has been run since then as a public catalog and a resource I often use when doing research for cases. I would love if you guys showed them some love and gave them a follow on Twitter. I think it would be really cool if we just en masse gave them a huge boost of support. Anyways, on to the case. The oldest missing persons cold case takes place in 1910. On December 12, 1910, 25-year-old socialite and heiress Dorothy Arnold disappeared while she'd been out running errands. She had told her mother she was going to go buy a new evening gown. Her mother offered to accompany her, but Dorothy declined. She left around 11 a.m. and was due to return for dinner. She was last seen at 1.45 p.m. by a shop clerk at Parkin Tilford's candy store. He said that she bought some candy and seemed in high spirits. She bought a book at Brentano's, and it was there that she bumped into a friend, and the two chatted for a few minutes. She told her friend that she was going to go walk through Central Park and meet her mother for lunch at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Both the clerk at the bookstore and her friend reported she seemed fine and nothing out of the ordinary stood out. Her parents believed that she may have been carrying $25 to $30. In today's value, that would be around $700 to $900. This wasn't a normal amount of money, but it would have been if she was to purchase an evening gown that day. Dorothy was well-educated, she spoke several languages, and hoped to become a writer. Her father was a renowned luxury importer, bringing in some of the finest European wares to the New York elite. Her uncle was a Supreme Court Justice, Rufus F. Peckham. At 25, the unmarried Dorothy still lived at home with her parents. There had apparently been some issues regarding Dorothy's living situation. She wanted to move into an apartment in Manhattan, but her father forbade it. This would have been very abnormal for a young unmarried woman to live alone at the time. Dorothy didn't seem like she was in a rush to settle down. She was last seen at the bookstore, and from there she seems to have vanished. It also didn't appear that she had visited anywhere that would have sold or made dresses that day. She missed dinner that night, which was out of character for Dorothy, and although her parents were worried, they didn't do anything yet. By the next evening, they were more concerned and hired private investigators to track down their daughter. They didn't want to go to the police as they didn't want to cause any sort of scandal. They didn't know why or what happened with Dorothy, and while they were concerned, it didn't seem as though they felt that anything bad had happened. They were more concerned with maintaining her reputation. There had been a situation the previous year with another prominent New York family. Adele Boas was 13 and disappeared. There had been a massive manhunt for the teen, and it was later discovered that she had run away with a boy to Boston. She was later found and returned home, and the family had been scandalized and shamed in the newspapers. 
Perhaps because Dorothy had wanted to live on her own and live more independently, her parents assumed that may have been what happened in this situation. Her bedroom didn't show any signs of a young woman about to run away. All her personal belongings were there still. The PI looked in jails, hospitals, and morgues across New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston. When the first PI came up and he handed, they hired another one. This team of detectives interviewed her friends, and they went as far as checking hundreds of marriage licenses in Europe, as there was a theory that she'd run off to elope. Five weeks of searching had led to no sign of Dorothy, and eventually her parents contacted the New York City Police Department. They held a press conference, and her father offered a $1,000 reward, around $30,000 in today's value. It was later discovered that Arnold had met a man while she was in college in Pennsylvania. The two had been secretly seeing each other, and when her family found out about it, they forbade Dorothy from seeing him again, as they didn't feel he was a suitable husband. His name was George Grissom Jr., and he had been on holiday in Italy with his parents when Dorothy had disappeared and denied knowing where she was. Also discovered was that Dorothy had a secret P.O. box, but that was likely for her writing career. Her first manuscript had been rejected by a magazine, and when it came to her family home, they had poked fun at her writing career. After that, it appeared that she got a P.O. box to have correspondence delivered relating to her writing submissions. Dorothy's disappearance became international news. Her pictures were in newspapers all over the U.S. and Europe. The reward money had sent more than one on a mission to find the young woman. After a 75-day investigation, the NYC PD declared Dorothy Arnold deceased. While there were numerous sightings and reports of people claiming to be the missing young woman, nothing panned out as a credible lead. The Arnold family received two ransom notes, but the alleged kidnappers were just hoping to scam the family. There are several theories about what might have happened. Her boyfriend claimed that she had been depressed about all the rejected manuscripts, and he believed that she had committed suicide. Another theory is that Dorothy had been pregnant, sought an illegal abortion, and died in the process. There had been a doctor in Pennsylvania that had a basement clinic raided when several young women disappeared after visiting it. A doctor who had worked there said that it was common practice to burn bodies of patients that died of complications, and said Dorothy may have been one of those victims. Her father, Francis Arnold, had reported to have spent $250,000 trying to find his daughter. He died in 1922, never knowing what happened to her. He was so sure she was dead that he left her out of his will. Her mother, Mary Arnold, died in 1928. It was said that she remained hopeful her daughter was alive and well for the rest of her life. In a case that is now well over 100 years old, it still bears similarities to modern ones. Devastated families are left in the wake of a missing person, families that deserve answers for their loved ones. And like I always say, you never know who's watching. Any sort of coverage can unlock a key piece of evidence needed to close one of these cold cases. Well, folks, we've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. 
If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.